The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast, where good taste and bad taste collide. That's the way we open this show. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic of some stripe of little renown. And uh, Selling yourself too short, dude. And, and with me, as always, is uh, the resplendent and unbelievably intelligent... Why don't you introduce yourself, William? My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And I, you're going to have to forgive me for this episode. I am incredibly distracted by Whitney's fabulous nails. You look amazing. Yeah, I have uh, painted my nails. They look great. This is just me uh, doing sort of an amateur job. So there's, you know, spots and it's uneven. Better than I've ever done. I love that you varied it up a little bit for per finger. To to describe, on my left hand, I have a... An alternate between sparkly blue and sparkly turquoise. Nice. And then on my right hand, it's sparkly purple and just sort of like a blood red. Yeah, it looks really cool. So yeah, I have kind of multicolored fingers right now. You look great. Okay, well, <laughs> uh, hey, uh, what an exciting start to an exciting episode. We've got a whole bunch of movie reviews. We missed last week. It was my birthday last week, and so I was asked to, to take a day off. And so I did. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it was the day we recorded this podcast, so we just had to let it go and move on. So we're catching up. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's going to be another one where Whitney's seen most of the movies, but it's going to be an exciting episode, and I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to be reviewing the new films Coming to America, Chaos Walking. Just just Chaos Walking. Oh, sorry. Uh, Raya and the Last Dragon, Boogie, Pixie, Lucky, <laughs> the SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the Run. Sponge on the Run. <laughs> uh, My Salinger Year. Lazarus and Yes Day, and on the critically acclaimed <laughs> streaming club, where we review films that are also available on streaming services but aren't new releases and aren't getting necessarily the attention they deserve, uh, we're going to be reviewing by Patreon request Ed Wood's cult classic Glen or Glenda, which is currently available in a variety of places, but uh, we specifically watched it on Tubi. Tubi has like one of the best lineups of just great cult movies just really collected together stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah it's a really interesting collection if you're looking for the weird stuff that the other places don't have tubi does have it hmm. they have other problems with that service uh you might notice that like when it says like hey do you want to watch the news on tubi it's literally all fox because fox owns tubi hmm. so that's where the money goes but they still have cool horror movies from the 70s so you can't really deny that and uh, biggest complaint is that you you have to watch it with ads and there's very little thought given as, as to where the ad drop ads yeah. blocks drop into the movie. So Pretty it's just sort of like it'll be interrupted mid line of dialogue. But there aren't as many as I've seen in other services to the, to to say that much. Like I've yeah. seen other services where they're like an ad every three minutes because it's free, and I'm like, eh. like do we? It's, it's not too bad. But anyway, we'll talk about that later on in the episode. Uh, we have a lot of catching up to do, mm-hmm. and I'm very excited to do so. And uh, well, let's just dive right in, shall we? Uh, one of the biggest 
new releases of the last few weeks is a sequel to a comedy classic from 1988 starring Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall. It's called Coming to America. Uh, it is arguably one of Eddie Murphy's best movies. It, it was a huge hit at the time. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was in this big wave of um, comedy, uh, the comedy trope of sort of an outsider coming to the big city. Yeah. Was a big part. A we big, had uh, Crocodile Dundee. Yeah, two was years one of before those. was Crocodile Dundee. Um, that was actually the premise of Gremlins Two. They go to the big city. Um, <laughs> Fish out of water uh, stories yeah. are always funny. Yeah, Home, Home Alone Two was what that was the. Uh, they oh, go, yeah, they go to point, New York. Yeah. Uh, Muppets take Manhattan. Jason takes Manhattan. Going to the big city was a, mm-hmm. a thing uh, in the late eighties and early nineties. Adventures in babysitting. Oh, there you go. There's another another gag there. Yeah. Mm. Um, so yeah, the, the original film uh, starred uh, Eddie Murphy as a prince of a fictional African country called Z- Zamunda. Zamunda, and he which, is uh, which is located really close to the Paramount logo. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, mm. And uh, he is uh, what was he doing here? So he's at the beginning of the original movie. He is set to have an arranged marriage for the good of the land. And he realizes that he doesn't want to marry someone he doesn't have an actual connection with. Uh, so he convinces his father, played by the great James Earl Jones, to let him go to New York City. And his father thinks he's going to just get it out of his system. And then mm. he'll come back and he'll marry who we tell him to marry. And everything will be fine. But what Eddie Murphy is really looking for is a meaningful romantic connection with somebody. And he ends up pretending not to be royalty. He ends up working for a fake fast food restaurant called McDowell's, which mm. is not like McDonald's because of the spelling. Uh, and, and that's uh, they, a recurring gag, and it's really funny. They gave the... Uh, I actually rewatched the original Coming to America, and they give the address of the McDowell's restaurant, and we looked it up. We wanted to see what was actually at that address What's in Queens. There? Uh, it's just a construction site right now. They're putting up some mixed-use building. Ah. But it says that McDowell's is located there, <laughs> like on Google Maps. Okay, that's funny. Yeah, that's really so, cool. Somebody thought to do that. That's really nice. Um, uh, but yeah, he ends up meeting the, the woman of his dreams and mm. they fall in love and she realizes he's a prince and yada, yada, yada. Eventually they go back and everything's fine. And, uh, yeah, it's been 33 years, 33 damn years <laughs> since coming to the original coming to America. And it's a, it's a beloved movie. It mostly holds mm. up pretty good. Um, a lot of the jokes are really, really funny. Eddie Murphy plays a whole bunch of incidental characters. So does Arsenio Hall. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, so uh, it's, it, it's finally time for a sequel and uh, basically what we're dealing with here is an excuse to get the gang back together. I think and, it's a fair place. It's a fair way to call it. And it's all of the gang. Yeah. Anybody who... Uh, who Everyone who's still alive. Every surviving cast member from the original comes back, including like little tiny incidental character actors. They'll yeah. come back. Uh, and Arsenio Hall and Eddie Murphy reprise most of... They played multiple roles in the original and they reprise all of those roles for this one. Yeah. And uh, Arsenio Hall also gets to play an elderly sort of uh, vizier character as well. That's a new character. He, he, uh, he also plays a uh, he also plays the preacher from the original. Mm. They play the people at the barber shop. Uh, there's a few other surprise uh, cameos as well. There's a really good reference to another Eddie Murphy movie I thought was genuinely funny. Uh, I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's mm. fun. Um, and uh, yeah, so the plot of this one is uh, it has been 31 years, 33 years, 33 years, it's been uh, 33 years. In, in the course of the movie, it's been. Th- 30, 31 years because mm-hmm. that because of the age of the the son character. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the, the the story is this: uh, it, in the years since coming to America, uh, James Earl Jones is still on the throne. He's an old man, uh, and uh, Eddie Murphy has not become king yet. 
And he has been happily married this entire time. And he has three really cool daughters, mm. uh, including one played by uh, Kiki Lane from uh, uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. Yes. And she's really cool. Um, problem is, it's still a very sexist country, and he is told that unless he has a son, his, uh, his daughters cannot take the throne unless they marry. And the uh, leader of the neighboring nation of Nextoria... Isn't that cute? Which is... It tells you right away how seriously we're supposed to take this movie. <laughs> uh, played by a really wonderful Wesley Snipes. Look, like, really just freed. Wesley Snipes is never not wonderful. And um, he and Eddie Murphy have great comic chemistry together, mm-hmm. uh, as was proven in uh, Craig Brewer's last film, Dol- uh, Dolomite Is My Name. Yeah, Craig Brewer directs this one. And Craig uh, Brewer also directed the sequel. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Wesley Snipes is on fire. I think he enjoys being funny again. Please just put him in more comedies. He's great. Uh, and, uh, so he wants to, uh, have, uh, Eddie Murphy's eldest daughter marry his eldest son, or else we'll go to war and kill you all. And Eddie Murphy's like, my daughter doesn't want to do that. I'm kind of stuck. And that's when he finds out that when he was in the original movie and they had this big montage of him, like, meeting women at a bar and going, yeah, pass. Mm. Uh, he had actually met Leslie Jones, gone back home with her. She had given him drugs and had sex with him against and his knowledge and he, consent. He, he was, and yeah, it, it, it's not it, it's not like knockout. You know, it, it, she didn't. It's not dr- violent, but it's also she, it's also wrong. It's she, very she, very wrong. She gave him uh, she gave him weed. Yeah, it's they. They say that he's like really he's never had marijuana before. He gets really, really high and like barely even remembers mm. the night. But he uh, yeah. fathered a child during that one night stand. And it turns out it's a boy. And, uh, and now he's got to go get her back. And I'm just going to say this right now. For a lot of people, that's going to be a big stumbling block in this movie because they do not reckon with that at all. No. At all. They do not talk about how that is a real violation. They don't really talk about how that's him, how he actually feels about that. And it goes to show for the millionth time that in the entertainment industry, male sexuality and particular sexual violence against males is mm. not treated like a thing. It's treated no, like a joke and it sucks. Well, sexual violence was a punchline for, for many, many years yes. until uh, you know, we started to have a, a little bit more of a sensitive reckoning with the topic. Mm-hmm. And it long, started, long, 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 long overdue. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah that, it's, it's treated like a gag in this movie. Uh, this and is a, this is, this is light, silly, trippingly off the tongue, cheap movie. Uh, yeah. it, it's, it's overlit. It's quickly edited. Uh, they didn't really find a lot of the comedic timing. They just sort of let things breathe, give things a little too much elbow room. So the pace mm. really suffers. Yeah. Uh, and a lot, a lot of the gags just aren't funny. Yeah. And but- then they do that the death knell of this kind of comedy is when they actually bring up in dialogue how useless it is to make a sequel too many years after the fact. That was a terrible, that was a genuinely terrible bit. And Mm. it, a, it calls attention to what people might be thinking about your movie. Mm. And it doesn't like, it doesn't take the edge off. It doesn't be like, okay, the movie knows it's bad. That makes it good. No, that has nothing to do with it. So if your movie sucks, you're just admitting that you should have known better and Mm. it doesn't help. Um, but also, again, if it's trying to be light and frothy and silly, and so interjecting this plot point is a really bad start. And for a lot of people, myself included, I was like, oh, shit. And 
it's not fun. It's not funny. It's fortunately not dwelled on very much. And you, if you can get past it, you mm. might have some fun with this movie. But if that's like a big thing that like ruins movies for you, and I totally get it if it is, you should know it's in there and that it sucks. Mm. Uh, and what really is annoying is that you didn't need to do that. There's no reason why that had to be the plot point you did. It could just be like he we know he had had like sex like mm. he they, they talk about how he was a virgin i'm like no we saw him like being like bathed by like people in the in the in the fowls mm. and everything the, the, you, just the say, royal you could just say he wasn't a virgin who cares like <laughs> it doesn't matter like whatever like it didn't have to make a big deal out of it and they turned it into a big deal and it was gross mm. moving on from that turns out he has a son his son has grown up not knowing his father and when Eddie Murphy shows up and says, I am your father and I am the king, I'm uh, sorry, I'm now the king of an African country because James Earl Jones passes away with easily the most epic funeral I've ever seen. Well, he, he, it's uh, really great. He, <laughs> it's a really great scene. Actually. We, we see, we see him in bed. He's, he says, I realize I'm dying. I'm going to have the best funeral. In fact, let's just have one before I'm dead. Cause I want to see it. Yeah. So they so put, they, they put James Little Jones in a coffin. They put him in a coffin stage. and he's like laughing and clapping his hands to end Vogue at his own funeral. And, yeah. and Morgan Freeman is there playing himself, narrating it. Yeah. Talking about how sad it was when he died and James Little Jones dies on stage. It's a really funny bit. I'm going to like, that's a funny bit. Um, and so Eddie Murphy's got to find this son in order to free his daughter from this arranged marriage and, and, and set up his son in yeah. a different arranged marriage with yeah. Wesley Snipes daughter. So it's basically the sequel becomes an inversion of the original, whereas the original was about someone from this nation of uh, Zamunda coming to New York. This one is about this kid from New York coming to Zamunda. Hmm. They really should have been called Coming to Zamunda. Yeah, they actually don't... Like, he goes to America, but it's not about coming to America. Uh, like, like ten uh, minutes of this movie takes place in America. It, it's also an inversion in the same way that... Um, that Shaft was kind of an inversion. If you remember yeah. the, that really abysmal Shaft uh, film. From the most the, recent uh, one. The most recent with, one. With uh, yeah. Tim Story, yeah. That directed it, yeah. Uh, in, in that, the the... Previously rebellious character is now in the position of being sort of the the stuffed shirt character. Yeah, Eddie Murphy was the one who the like old, ran away to one, be yeah. romantic, and now he's got to be the one like enforcing a forced marriage. Yeah, and, he, uh, yeah. Akeem is the character's name. He plays. Yeah. He's now the straight man, and everybody else is sort of like the all the American characters are sort of like the wacky comic foils. Yeah, uh, Leslie Jones can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. She's very she, funny. She, like, she does all this, like, broad improvisational humor, and it's all, like, blue, and yet she always makes it land. She's just hilarious. Yeah. Well, you never get the impression that she's doing it just to be shocking. She's mm. playing a character who would do that. Yeah. yeah. And she's really, she nails it. Every mm. single bit she does in this movie, she absolutely nails In fact, a lot of people are really, really funny in this movie. I'm actually really fond of uh, Jermaine Fowler, who oh. plays uh, uh, Eddie Murphy's uh, uh, son, Lavelle. Um, I actually think he he ends up having to carry like the second half of this movie, a lot of it on his shoulders. I think he's really talented. I think he's got a lot of charisma. He doesn't have as much to work with as Eddie yeah, Murphy was, did in was, the original, but he's doing his job. And he's very charming. I, 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 like was, I was going to say that that he's he's doing it, but he's not given uh, a lot. I think yeah. he's not given enough. I think that, that's fair. I think the real star here is apart from Wesley Snipes is Arsenio Hall. Yeah. Uh, his his character is really hilarious. He's become this like really loathed character. Yeah, he's, everyone, everyone, nobody likes being of, around him. He's like vain and you know used to wealth in the original, but he, kind of a shallow character. But he wasn't hated. And in this one now 
everybody hates him. Yeah. They're constantly like insulting him, and he just sort of tries to take it in stride as best he can. Arsenio Hall, by the way, who has aged maybe a week since <laughs> since 1988. Yeah, uh, I think I think Arsenio um, comes across well. Wesley Slimes again is yeah. can do no wrong, and I think Kiki Lane is great. I think she she also doesn't have like funny stuff. Her character is taken very very seriously, mm. and I actually think appreciate that. Because ultimately what we're dealing with is a story about a sexist society. And mm. she is ostensibly a person in position to change it. But she's being stymied by this patriarchy. And the movie doesn't treat that like a joke. Mm. The movie actually treats that like a serious injustice that ultimately something needs to be done in the narrative to fix. And I appreciate that. So she actually comes across like a fucking superhero. Yeah. And it makes me want to see her play a goddamn superhero why aren't we casting kiki lane as a superhero she's awesome hmm. i want to see her in more movies please put her in bigger yeah, things um, all the time uh, but as the story goes on it turns out uh, uh he has uh, the son has a uh, different views as to how these things should work and he ends up uh, starting to fall in love with uh, his his uh, hairstylist and barber yeah. uh, a character named mirembe played by nomzamo umbatha who is she's really funny too yeah. she um I feel like this film is really scattered. It doesn't really have the same kind of sharp comedic focus that the original did. Uh, the first one was like much more tightly scripted. This one's a lot looser. Uh, it is just sort of a hangout movie. And yeah, I miss somebody... these characters. I'd like to hang out with them for another two hours. Can I please so, do that? So here they That's are kind of the movie. Yeah. Hanging out. Um, some of the gags from the original are just repeated verbatim. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they bring back all of the support. There's a, a scene, w that scene where they're uh, picking up women in a bar in New York. In the original, there's a, a identical twin rappers. Mm -hmm. They bring them back. That's true. I forgot about uh, that. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they, they have a, they, they got sexual chocolate back on stage. All of the gags yeah. you remember from the original are all yeah. back. Um, it's, it's kind of limp. It's kind of lazy. It kind of got me just because I I grew up watching that movie so much. As I I was actually happy to be back hanging with hanging out with those people. I actually don't I don't disagree at all. I think I th I'm I'm really bummed out that the fundamental premise of the movie is is got this just this shitty plot point. Mm. But if you can get past that and you do have any affection for the original, it is nice to see everyone hanging out and to see that all these people are still funny. Like it would be nice if they were like in a tighter screenplay. Yeah, but they're still funny, and there's a lot of really funny bits in it, and there's a lot of incidentally funny moments that, yeah, you know, some of them are just a little tiny. Just the way Wesley Snipes says something, or the mm -hmm. way Arsenio Hall says something, it's not even a joke, but they're just funny. And I actually like that. I like the light tone of the movie. I like um, that it is full of really obvious jokes, like the fact that the country is named Nextoria reminds me of like a Marx Brothers routine yeah, where yeah. it's supposed to be farcical, it's supposed to be larger than life, and you can be a little forgiving and. Yeah, I, I, it kind of got me too. Like, I don't love it, I, but as comedy sequels go, there are good comedy sequels. People don't mm -hmm. talk about them as often, but there are. This isn't a great one, but this is a this is a decent one in that it only exists to get the gang back together. But they got the whole gang back together, mm -hmm. and they got to do some fun stuff. And that's about it, really. I've seen way worse films. I've seen way worse films. I would probably be giving this at the end of the episode of Flat Out C Plus hmm. if they didn't like if they developed that storyline to a point where it wasn't gross, but like it's because it just kind of sullies the first part of the movie for mm -hmm. me. It just kind of ruined it for yeah, me. But yeah. like it eventually won me back. And so without that it'd be a downright C plus. But I just I really like this one. I, I, I wanted to like it more, but I, I did mm -hmm. end up finding myself charmed. But it is super yeah, cheap it's, and, it's, and kind it's, of floppy. Yeah, it's 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 charming, but yeah, it's uh, 
it, it's only like a few steps above something like Pootie Tang in terms of its like professionalism. Yeah. Uh, Pootie Tang, a, a film I like, by the way, but it, it was made on a budget of a hundred bucks. Yeah, like yeah. they're they're just barely making that movie. Uh, uh, speaking of a budget of a hundred bucks, yeah. tell me about the uh, film Chaos Walking, which cost a fortune <laughs> and uh, had a. If you look it up, had a famous, famously troubled production. Yeah, uh, Chaos Walking is uh, based on a YA novel, so uh, it has a really high concept, and all really boils down to teen angst. Uh, it takes place on a distant planet in the future where a planet of nothing but men uh, has, in, due to some cataclysm, uh, all of the women are, are gone from this planet because all of the men have developed on this planet psychic powers. And when I say that, they they can, without controlling it, they project their thoughts and, in fact clouds of their own thoughts are constantly floating around their heads. We can hear their thoughts and also we can occasionally see images in their little clouds and they call that their noise. So they're constantly just broadcasting their id. Okay. And, uh, Tom Sounds Holland, like a Star Trek episode I'd like to see. Uh, yeah. And, and in, this is based on a book and in print, I can see that working a little bit better because that's a little bit more abstract, this idea of a cloud of thoughts around your head that people can hear. Yeah. Visually, it's just distracting uh, because A, you're seeing all of these clouds blowing off of people's heads, but we're also constantly hearing this kind of like Terrence Malick uh, narration going on around each character because we're constantly hearing their thoughts whether or not they're talking. Yeah. So the entire film is just full of chatter. Okay. It's a that little, sounds, it's a little that, annoying. Sounds annoying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the plot gets going when uh, uh, Daisy Ridley, who has been off planet on a spaceship, uh, crash lands and has to get, like in the movie Starman, has to get back to her crash site to send a signal to get picked up. She's the only woman on this planet. The uh, evil Will Patton type character, who in this one is played by Mads Mikkelsen. <laughs> Will Patton play, has played, you know, the... Uh, Lord of the Wasteland in several post-apocalyptic movies, if I recall. He, he was a bad guy du jour for, mm -hmm. like, the late 90s for a while after, mm -hmm. like, Gary Oldman didn't want the roles anymore. So Will Patton became, like, the guy in, like, The Postman. And, yeah. um, um, boy, The Postman is a hell of a film, man. <laughs> I'm waiting for people to rediscover how fucking weird The Postman is because that movie is over the top and ludicrous. It's, it's, it's not good, but it is kooky. It's very watchable. Mm -hmm. It's just really stupid. Mm -hmm. Anyway... Um, but yeah, Daisy, We're talking about the Kevin Costner one, and, uh, not the Massimo Troisi one. And uh, eventually, uh, Tom Holland and Daisy, Daisy Ridley have to go on the land together, and he has to uh, contest with this idea that he can see his thoughts while Mads Mikkelsen is trying to hunt them down because women are kind of a danger to their society. Now, if you're looking at this film as maybe a metaphor for Twitter, where... <laughs> where women are pushed out because men can't control their thoughts. Maybe it kind of plays a little bit. I mean, that does sound that's, like a that's, decent metaphor. That's kind of, yeah. kind of an interpretation of it, but I don't think this film knows what it's getting at, uh, in terms of like what the premise is supposed to be saying. It's just a bunch of annoying chatter, uh, that is not explored in any kind of meaningful way. You would think in a world where you could see and hear other people's thoughts, there'd be a lot more intimacy, but ultimately it's just this boring, uh, boring story about machismo and how keeping your thoughts under control is turned into this kind of ultra macho planet wide cult. 
David Oyelowo is in this. He plays a preacher, and when he when we see his thoughts, it kind of comes off of him like flames. So when he starts yelling about sin and sex and and uh, and uh, committing acts of violence, he actually uh, erupts in fire and brimstone. So there's some fun visual stuff, at least with his character. But for the most part, it's just a lot of visual noise. Mm. It is chaos, uh, and it's not enjoyable. It's not interesting. It's and you can watch the money just sort of burning away. This is a big, huge, slick A Hollywood production, and it's it's like sleepwalking. Uh, the director is Doug Lyman, and we know he knows how to do interesting sci-fi premises because he did Edge of Tomorrow. That's true. I also know that if you look at his filmography, he is notorious for leading troubled productions. And somehow making them work. In fact, you could call, like, if you were making, like, a book about Doug Lyman's career, you could do worse for a title than Chaos Walking. <laughs> like, you watch, there's an amazing uh, special feature on the DVD for, Lo- uh, not Looper, Jumper. Mm. Starring uh, Hayden Christensen and Jamie Bell. And uh, it's also based on a YA book, uh, and it's, it's about... about uh, people who can teleport. Yeah, it's about a secret uh, group of people who can teleport, and they use this to their advantage, and then there are people who hunt them down because they're breaking the rules or whatever. Um, the movie is fun. The movie also had an incredibly harried production and there is a special feature on the DVD and this came out when the movie came out. This wasn't like 10 years later. They did a retrospective. There's a documentary on the, on the DVD. That's all about how incredibly chaotic the filmmaking was. Mm. And you can see people like struggling to say good things about Doug Lyman. Like Samuel Jackson's like, yeah, you know, you just, you never know what he's going to do next. But he'd say it with like that kind of pregnant pause. And there's this recurring gag throughout the documentary where Jamie Bell is asked to come to the set to film that day. And then they never film him. And then one time he's there all day. And then at the end of the day, Doug Lyman says, oh, uh, Jamie needs a haircut. And uh, would you mind giving him a haircut? And they give him a haircut. By the time he's done coming out of hair and makeup, everyone else is gone for the day. And then finally, <laughs> because this is a movie with teleporting, everyone has like five body doubles for various shots. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamie Bell gets bored. This is the kid from uh, Billy Elliot, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, he gets bored and takes all of his body doubles and choreographs like a six Jamie Bell dance number. <laughs> and it's all about how just chaotic. Uh, the Born Identity was a chaotic production. Mr. and Mrs. Smith was a chaotic production. But those movies ended up working. Like, that's the deal. At the end of the day, he ended up making the movie work somehow. Hmm. Chaos Walking doesn't seem to be that. No, no, no. Um, there, There's something poignant that could be said here, but they're not saying anything with it. They're just sort of set up a kind of interesting premise and use it as an excuse to have a boy worry about what a girl thinks of him. It's like, ugh, come on. Cause the uh, whole thing is he can't, he can't see her thoughts. Yeah, well, so that makes her but special. I, I, like we, we live, so many of these YA books take place in these really imaginative worlds where there's a lot of interesting things going on. And you know, what was that one with, the fifth wave mm. with Chloe Grace Moretz or the host. Yeah. The host where, is a really um, interesting premise. Yeah. Where there's yeah. all, all these, uh, all these weird aliens, uh, invading or some kind of science fiction premise. Yeah. And ultimately the story boils down to, gee, I hope I can get a girlfriend or boyfriend. And it, yeah, I understand that's important at a certain point in your life, but yeah. when you're a teenager, it's everything you have. But if, never, you, like, if you're going to set up a, a larger world, can we ex- maybe explore the greater implications of what's going on here? That's what the sequels Teenagers are for. Also like that. That's what the sequels are. No, for. the sequels are just to introduce other love interests. 
Oh no, I'm in love with a vampire. What does that mean? Well, too distracted because now I'm in love with a werewolf too. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah, they're not always done well. Could we get some imagination in here? That would have been nice. Well, it sounds like an imaginative premise. Again, mm. the, the premise, like at least the premise of the world is a bit more interesting. Like, listen, there's a lot of good YA stories. I know a lot of people scoff at the genre, and mm. that's really not fair. There's a lot of really, really good YA movies. There's a lot of bad ones, too, just like any genre. Mm. Uh, but there have been a lot of ones that are really interesting and like have like really neat ideas or executed really, really well. And there are also some some ones that stink. And some of the ones that are really good are actually pretty straightforward. Like The Hunger Games? The Hunger Games is pretty straightforward. It's the most dangerous game in the future, but like focusing on like adding a level of celebrity, yeah, which is a neat idea. I don't know why we needed so many of the films. We could have done all of that in one, but yeah. there you go. I, know yeah, a, I think the second one's really books. cool, but yeah. Um, then uh, the whole fashion show thing kind of blindsided me. Yeah, but I like that, that though. It's, it's it's not what you expect it to be, mm. is it? Like it, it talks about like you know teen celebrity culture and then how they are sacrificed at the altar of society. Mm. That's interesting. I think they actually take I, a I relatively the, straightforward premise and make it a little different. That was an interesting element. I wish it had been more about that. I think it's a lot about yeah, it's, that. It's but more whatever. about the Hunger Games themselves, but yeah. whatever. Anyway, uh, I yeah. There's I, my point is that there's a lot of good stuff in the in the whole genre, and some of them have really interesting high concepts. And I'm bummed they didn't get a chance to see this one because I thought it sounded like an interesting premise, and I was just kind of curious to see how the hell it would try to work, whether or not it did. Mm. Sounds like it didn't. No, it did not. That's a shame. All right. Uh, well, let's move on. Uh, here's another one I'm disappointed I didn't get to mm. see: Raya and the Last Dragon, which I assume is a sequel to Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. Uh, close, close. Okay. This is, this is, um, has nothing to do with Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. Oh, that's a shame. I really like that movie. <laughs> that's a great movie, although, by the although, way. Uh, Barry Gordy's Last Dragon Ju- is an amazing film. Julius Carey shows up in this one. No, <laughs> Ju- Ju- Julius Carey passed away a, a, a while ago. But, um, uh, Ryan the Last Dragon is the latest uh, film out of the, uh, canonical Disney animated feature staple. It was, House of Mouse. It, it was meant to go to theaters, but they ended up uh, putting it on a Disney Plus with a premium uh, rental fee added on top of it, just like they did with Mulan last year. Uh, Ryan the Last Dragon is uh, takes place in a fictional Asian country. Uh, it stars Kelly Marie Tran as Raya, who, uh, when she was... A, and because there's this is the way modern uh, animated films are in the Disney canon are written. There's this big 20 minute prologue explaining everything uh, uh, about the world. But basically there were, the kingdom used to be united and uh, all of the monsters that had somehow manifested in this land, these big purple cloud monsters were kept at bay by a magical dragon gem. All of the dragons that lived there, put all their magic into a crystal ball and it keeps all the, all the monsters at bay. Mm. Uh, the kingdoms all uh, start to resent one another. They charge in, grab the gem, it breaks into five pieces, and it's spread throughout the land. And then we fast forward to the present. Okay. Raya is now an adult, and she rides around in a giant pill bug. Cool. And now has to go from kingdom to, to kingdom, picking up the crystal shards and reassembling them like a video game fetch quest. Okay. Uh, a perfectly okay mm, setup for any fantasy movie, because yeah, it mean, used to go to a bunch of places. Uh, and and if, along the way, she does pick up some uh, some followers, most notably the Last Dragon, uh, who is played by Aquafina, and oh. uh, she is wisecracking, anachronistic, modern, quipping, modern talking kind of character. So like Eddie Murphy's dragon in Mulan. Exactly. <laughs> 
Like Eddie Murphy's dragon in Mulan. The dragons in this, though, are, uh, they're like furry, soft unicorn type uh, dragons. They're not like fiery monsters. Oh, so like so never-ending story dragons. Yeah, they're, they're, okay. they're uh, which are, which is actually more in keeping with uh, Asian mythology, where they're not fire monsters. They're more like wind and, and, uh, and water yeah. creatures. And uh, each time uh, Raya picks up one of the shards, uh, her dragon, Aquafina, gets a few like a few more powers from her siblings. She is uh, reveals that she was the least of her dragon siblings, so she has a little bit of anxiety to overcome. Which is Meanwhile, also which is also what, uh, the story of Eddie Murphy's dragon in Mulan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I haven't seen this, but that's that's um, funny to me. Okay, I really like Mulan. By the yeah. way, it's not it's not a slight. Here's what I like about Ryan the Last Dragon. Uh, they Disney has been going out of their way to. Well, maybe not going out of the way, but they've at least been trying to be more inclusive when it comes to a lot of their uh, their animated fare. Right. Uh, so this is an all Asian cast, and uh, all of the characters are animated with a variety of skin tones, uh, and you know a variety of characters and nations are represented. I felt like there was a lot of references to something like uh, the animated version of Avatar: The Last Airbender, whereas mm-hmm. like the different kingdoms were very clearly representative of different countries. Uh, and I, I appreciate that we're getting to see that, mm-hmm. that there's a, a lot of it, like visual inclusion of these, you know, of a various uh, swath of humanity in these movies. Yeah. And if you want to, uh, if you want to know, uh, like just like how mm-hmm. much catching up to do mm-hmm. uh, Disney has, Disney didn't have a black animated character who was actually a, a person of color, like a black person mm-hmm. not like a, a dragon played by eddie murphy until 2001's atlantis the lost empire yep yeah they have, they have a lot of catching up to do <laughs> a so lot they're they're making a conceited effort but you know it's um, conceited or concerted cons- concerted concerted okay. effort uh to uh to have have more inclusivity in their movies i just wish that they were also trying to be creative with their stories. This is a dull movie. Aww. It's not exciting to watch. Uh, I was reminded of something like, um, let's say Conan the Destroyer, which is another kind of fetch quest movie. Yeah, we got to go uh, get this magical gem and then take it back so and, they can raise a monster and then we can fight that monster. And then, then there's a princess and he picks up Grace Jones and Tracy Walter and all these like colorful characters end up following Conan. And Conan's kind of a, a dull, he's just a big wad of muscle. So he doesn't, he's not like a leader character. Yeah. Uh, that one works because it's cheap schlock. Mm-hmm. This is like a really slick A production, and we're supposed to be taking this story really, really seriously, and it is the most basic kind of story that you could have in this kind of movie. Uh, hmm. cl- clearly, it was written by somebody who you know, was probably around our age and played a lot of video games and thought, well, that's, that's fine. That'll do. Mm-hmm. That's fine when you just need something kind of functional to put some kind of quirk or character or under budget filmmaking into well like when you're trying to make a three star movie yeah that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I call the four star three star yeah, movie like, like you can you, only get so good because yeah. your ambitions were low yeah you, you yeah. Uh, maybe you, you don't have a, a big budget or you want to do some really interesting character stuff so you make the story really basic yeah 
this doesn't have anything to justify the basicness of its plot. It's just sort of this forgettable story about well, gathering dragon crystals and all the language and all the terminology and stuff that was old hat in you know, the late 80s. Yeah, well, let, let, let me ask you this, because there's more, there's more to an animated movie than that, and mm-hmm. there's also a, a level of sort of immersion. You know, there's a lot of, like, simple animated movies that mm-hmm. are still very fascinating to visit. Mm-hmm. Um, does it... Is, does it weave an exciting world? Is it really beautiful to look at? Like, is it is that worth it? No, it's oh. not. The design is not interesting. Oh. <laughs> there, there's a few in, interesting things going on uh, with like the the creatures, but it's like Disney's character design is all kind of indistinguishable from one another now. I've yeah. I've commented before that the characters in Tangled would feel at home in the movie Frozen. There's no difference there. To, to be fair, that's not new. Like if you look no. at like the character designs mm. in like the 60s in Disney, oh. they were all mostly of a piece. And you know what? I hate it then too. Okay. I think this is a big problem with Disney is that they're not trying to do something kind of striking and original with this gigantic powerful animation studio every single time. Look at Laika. All of their characters throughout their movies don't look like they'd match together in, in each other's movies. Well, granted, yes. Uh, and, and also they have really wild designs. Uh, no, Raya doesn't have that. It's not really fully committed to this idea that it's about uh, a land that's fractured. Um, it's a post-apocalyptic story, but at the same... Because the, the creatures reemerge and they're, mm. they're like sucking up all the water, so everything is desert. Yeah. And... You'd think that this would mean, okay, that means there's like tiny enclaves of people trying to survive, but the cities are perfectly healthy and they have plenty of water. And, you know, so it's not really rolling with the post-apocalyptic thing that things are like kind of at risk here uh, or that people are kind of struggling to survive in any kind of meaningful way. Uh, No, no, this is just the, the Disney formula with, you know, only the minorest of tweaks. And that's not something that's interesting to me. I wish I had seen this one. I really do. I really feel like I could have had a better conversation about this. Because honestly, like, I'm more forgiving about stuff like this than you are. Like, mm-hmm. I just, like, I don't mind necessarily, at any rate, uh, a film that just is its genre and then moves along. Like, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a deal breaker for me. So I do I do plan to see this. And if I do and have a strong other opinion, I'll bring it up at some point on the All podcast, right. just to, just in case. Again, I, it's not that I don't trust you. It's just we both host the show for a reason. <laughs> That's all there is to it. Uh, tell me about Boogie. Boogie. Uh, Boogie is a new film from uh, filmmaker Eddie Huang, and it is about a uh, the teenage child of Chinese immigrants living in New York who dreams of basketball fame. Cool. And uh, it's about how he uh, is essentially... It, it goes through a lot of uh, really common sport movie tropes about mm. I was trying out and you know trying to get on the team and not really uh, f- not really doing it at first and then working really hard and then failing and then succeeding again. The story isn't so interesting as uh, the character himself. The character is is Boogie. That's his nickname, mm-hmm. and he is a really honestly depicted teenage character in that he's easily distracted. He's not entirely uh he's not too bright he doesn't like to pay attention to school he's really kind of an angry kid he dismisses his teachers he dismisses his parents uh when he gets out on the uh on the basketball court he gets in a lot of trouble because he prefers to start fights or posture than actually play the game and that's getting him in a lot of trouble uh he starts to have a a relationship with a young woman and they're incredibly frank about uh, where they stand sexually and what uh, like 
what they expect from one another and the kind of pressures that they're under. Like, and they just use really frank language in a few scenes, just letting them know exactly where they stand. And over the course of the film, we're expecting sort of that big turnaround, the big sports movie push where he turns everything around or there's that training montage where he learns to concentrate again. But we don't ever get that. This is shoes that sport movie trope in favor of character moments. And instead of spending its time building up the plot toward the big game, we just spend time with Boogie and the people around him and kind of get to know their local patois a little bit better. Uh, the The way these people relate, the kind of jokes they make with one another. And it lends to it this uh, wonderful authenticity that gives it a lot of uh, wonderful texture. From what I understand, this film was semi-autobiographical. Uh, Eddie Huang, uh, I th- I'm not sure if he dreamed of basketball fame, but it is about his experience as the a child of Chinese immigrants. And uh, as such, I think that also lends a little bit more to that authenticity I was talking about, if he's t- yeah. telling his own story. Um, I dug it. It doesn't climax or crest in any kind of satisfying way as a result Mm. it's more of a movie where we're just sort of hanging out with boogie learning about his neighborhoods learning about all the people that he's around without getting that gigantic dramatic punch at the end which we kind of expect from sports movies Um, Uh, well yeah any movie where somebody touches a single piece of sporting equipment we expect the victory moment yeah or or the failure moment well yeah and it also uh, but but if they if they eschew that what what else is there for this to be hmm effective does it does it have an interesting point at the end does it feel like we've really been somewhere does it feel like we've hung out with the character for a while well we've hung around with the character for a while and we've learned a lot about his experience and as a result uh the experience of a lot of children of immigrants and how uh they're mistreated by a lot of the american systems how they're uh, pressured by their parents how they're pressured by all of the people around them and how they all have very distinct personalities. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not trying to paint in this melodramatic way how everybody you know all all immigrants are going to have a very common experience when coming to America. No, this, uh, often they they have very uh, idiosyncratic dreams and a lot of interesting things to talk about. And I, I'm glad that we could spend some time with Boogie and learn mm-hmm. about him. Uh, Boogie is played by Taylor Takahashi, and this is like yeah. his, his big screen debut. Um, what, what, how, how does, does he feel like a natural? Does he feel like we're going to see big things or? He, he's, he's so natural that I'm not really sure, uh, where his talent lies. In fact, Mm -hmm. uh, he could, I, it seems like he's playing himself and there's a place for that. I like a good natural actor. Um, but maybe Boogie is sort of his role. We don't know Sort of written for him. I'd have to see him in something else to see, uh, like what his range is, but he's very good in this. Fair play. All right, uh, we we just uh, we just boogied. Why don't we pixie? What's a pixie? <laughs> Tell me about pixie. Oh, pixie. Um, hey, remember remember the movie Pulp Fiction? Yes. Remember in the wake of Pulp Fiction, this like seven or eight year period when there was a gigantic push of all of these sort of 
quirky, scuzzy crime movies. Things to do in Denver when you're dead, Truth mm. or Consequences, New Mexico, yeah, yeah. Destiny Su- turns on the radio. Suicide Kings, Lock, yeah. Stock, and Smoking Barrels. Like Guy Ritchie came up during this yeah. post-Pulp Fiction boom. Uh, Goodbye Lover. Uh, one might even argue Get Shorty is part of that wave. I think it's fair. Yeah. Um, well, it, I mean, it pre-existed, but yeah. I think the resurgence of Elmore Leonard was people like, oh, we already had a Quentin Tarantino? Let's, let's, just, <laughs> let's do more of the, that. The idea is... Uh, there's a world of strange criminals out there. They all have their own little quirk. They uh, cuss very readily and they have a very flip attitude about violence. Mm-hmm. Pixie is one of those, but it's a 2021 film. Okay. Uh, it's so. Pic- we, is this something we just, we just have nostalgia for that era now? Is that where we're, it's been 20 I, years? I think so. This is a British film, so maybe this is just trying to ride mm-hmm. what Guy Ritchie has also been writing like, for a hey, while. Remember Lockstock? That was cool. Let's do another one of those. I mean, Guy Ritchie just made a film last well, year. Well, you know what so, I mean. But, yeah. like, you know, it's, it's, it's part of, my point is that it's part of history now. Like, we can have nostalgia for it. So it might yeah. just be ingrained in the, as an institution. Uh, but yeah, this, this one's directed by Barnaby Thompson. It stars Olivia Cook from uh, Ready Player One as, mm-hmm. as Pixie. Uh, she is the daughter of an ex-crime boss. She lives with Colomini, uh, okay. and she and two two young boys who want to uh, you know want to pick her up. Uh, they fall in on the road together with uh, through a long series of machinations, a big suitcase full of drug dealers' drugs, and they're going to take them to a drug dealer and try to sell them and get a lot of money. Uh, while uh, the local mob is on their tail, their local mob is run out of the Catholic Church, and all of the mobsters are Catholic priests, uh, and they're all headed by Alec Baldwin. Oh. Yeah. Uh, didn't see that. So yeah, Col- Did not see that cameo Col- coming. Col- Colomini, Alec Baldwin's in it. Uh, if you know the Irish comedian Dylan Moran, he's really funny. He's in yeah, this movie, too. Uh, and things continue quirkily apace. Uh, and there's this... Uh, Doom generation like sexual tension between the three young leads. Uh, you know, the both both of the young men wants to charm Pixie. Pixie is you know sort of fending them off, but also kind of intrigued by maybe forming a triad. Uh, mm. That doesn't that pays off, but not in sort of the daring way you might hope. Mm. Uh, it's pretty rote, <laughs> it's, uh. which is a weird thing for me to say for something as quirky as this, but having survived through a generation of quote quirky cinema well uh, th- this this feels like a, a contrived kind of quirkiness it's, where it's it's weird written by a normal person rather than weird mm-hmm. written by a weird person well there's 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 you're genuinely weird and want to convey that weirdness mm-hmm. and then there's i want this to be uh, uh marketably weird mm. Therefore, I'm going to do the weird things other people have done. Therefore, they're not weird anymore. And they just become part of the institution. And that's how we have things that, you know, start off really exciting. And then now people repeat them that they become dull. It's just that's how art works sometimes. Mm. Someone does something innovative. Other people rip them off. And then it becomes less exciting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's not not exciting anymore. Okay. So does this have anything special to recommend it? Is there any particular, like, good element or... Like, you know, hey, I mean, this Olivia Cook's really good. They're, they're, or, you know. just, I mean, it's well-paced. It's high energy. It's not incompetently directed. Uh, the, the director, Barnaby Thompson, uh, was better known as a producer and did a lot of sort of quirky... Co- like, he produced Spice World, or, or uh, uh, 
Wayne's World as well. Um, mm. So, you know, well-known British producer who uh, knows kind of light, fun, youthful comedies. There's some of that energy here, but yeah, I, I really wish that it had been a little bit more character-driven and a little less um, cutesiness driven Okay. Love that. Mm. Another unfortunate mm. uh, uh, thing. Uh, okay, so we, we boogied. We pixied. Can, are we? Are we gonna get lucky? How's how's lucky? Tell me about lucky. Oh, we're all we're all up all night to get lucky. Um, lucky, not to be confused with uh, the um, film from like the twenty was it twenty seventeen, the Harry Dean Stanton film. Oh yeah, I forgot about that, that. That one was also called Lucky. I feel like Lucky's. There've been a lot of Luckies. Yeah, I feel like this. This is a generic name. Yeah. It's been. It's been done. The uh, the Harry Dean Stanton film was one of the best films of its year. I think I called it the best film of that year. Um, I think it it's, did. It's yeah. really really wonderful. This film is the best. One of the best films of this year. Wow. Uh, this Lucky, uh, which debuted on Shutter, is a horror film. Uh, it was uh, directed by Natasha Kermani. It was written by the star Brea Grant. Brea Grant, who I just mentioned in. Uh, that film After Midnight, the monster film about yeah. uh, the the man who's trying to fend off a beast who's coming to his house at night. Yeah, you really like that one. Yeah, yeah. I, li- I like that one. It had a really great ending. Uh, Brea Grant uh, stars and wrote this one, and it is a very bizarre premise. Uh, she plays sort of a self-help guru who is trying to uh, start another book and has kind of run into a little bit of writer's block and her career is suffering a little bit as a result. And uh, she has a husband who is not really all that attentive to her. And we'll eventually learn why. Uh, but yeah, he, he just sort of treats her a little bit coldly, uh, is, is not really attentive to her problems. And then one evening, a masked killer, like out of a uh, slasher movie, breaks into their house. And she, uh, she sits up in bed and says, I think somebody's broken into our house. And the husband sits up and says, oh, this again. And gets up and says, oh, it's probably just that guy. He breaks in every night and he tries to kill us every night. And we kill him and he does it every night. And she has no memory of this. But they go downstairs. They see the the masked killer. They fight him off. He dies. And she says, what are we going to do about his body? And uh, he says, look again. It's probably already gone. Sure enough, she looks again and the body is gone. The The same thing happens the following night. The husband moves out. He's tired of this. Mm-hmm. And he, it's it's like he's bored with what's happening. Like he's not terrified. She's terrified. Somebody's trying to kill her. She gets legit injuries trying to fight off this man who's breaking into her house. Uh, uh, but then he just vanishes just to come back again the next night. The police aren't helpful. And every time she meets up with somebody, they just talk about how she's uh, she has a nice house. She has a nice husband. She has a nice job. She should consider herself lucky. Hence the title. Mm. This is a brilliant metaphor for the violence that women are facing every day from male kind. Mm. The, and not just physical violence, although that's a big part of this, but also the, the subtle little bits of emotional terrorism that this character and by extension, uh, you know, all of the women in the movie are suffering at the hands of like little microaggressions that police officers and husbands and boyfriends and all the males in their life kind of pass toward them. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really, really stylish. It's really terrifyingly filmed. Uh, it's just, you know, 
the director shoots the dickens out of all of the horror stuff. But after a while, it becomes less about the actual physical danger and more about this existential dread that's creeping into the main character's life. Well, I think that's the cool thing, and that's Mm. what you want, I think, from a lot of horror movies. Now, there's all different kinds of horror movies. Mm. There's just fun horror movies about murder and monsters, and that can be great, too. But if you're trying to really get under people's skin, you want to connect on a deeper level. Yeah, You want to connect to something more intangible, than just spiders are scary. Like, right. you know, you really want to like get into something that people will, you know, will affect people of any time, of any age or whatever. And it sounds like a really, really good one. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's, really, it's, it's really, really great. Uh, I yeah. make a great double feature with promising young woman. Uh, um, I, I don't regret having a birthday, of, but I do regret that I didn't get to see some of these movies. Yeah. Some of them sound amazing. Just it, in terms of just how bold it is and how yeah. uh, how forthright it is about what it's trying to say. It's yeah. a really, really great movie. That sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's move on. Um, all right, now here's a, obviously, you know, not every movie is exactly alike, but surely the SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the Run, has mm. some marked similarities <laughs> to Lucky. Okay. I, I'm not a regular consumer of SpongeBob SquarePants, the TV series. Yeah. I, I never had Nickelodeon. It came along a little too late in my life for me to pick it up. I think it debuted like the year I graduated high school. So I was a little beyond uh, uh, SpongeBob. But uh, they've made three feature films now, and I've seen all three films. And I'm grateful for these little injections of complete bonkers surreality uh, that come from these movies. Because Spongebob is a really weird-ass premise. It is about a sea sponge that is shaped like a kitchen sponge named Spongebob who lives in a, a, lives underwater. Uh, even though they live underwater, they still like light fires and cook food. <laughs> it's, it's not, a, it's not a world that makes sense. It's no. a very, it's a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a it's a very almost Dadaist world in some yeah, respects. Yeah, yeah. And SpongeBob is best friends with Patrick the Sea Star and uh, enemies with Squidward the Squid. That tracks. Uh, Sandy the Squirrel in a scuba suit is his girlfriend, and uh, the the movies are getting weirder and weirder. Th- these movies are insane. The last one had SpongeBob going up into space and talking to cosmic space dolphins that shoot lasers out of their blowholes. This one has uh, them wandering into a western town where they meet a talking tumbleweed played by a live-action Keanu Reeves. And they go into a bar and we get Snoop Dogg doing a number. Like, he actually sings a song in this movie. Mm. Uh, The story is such as it is. Uh, SpongeBob has a beloved snail named Gary. The snail meows. And the local vain deity Poseidon. As uh, running out of his own snail glop that he rubs on his face to keep his skin young, so he kidnaps Gary, and it's up to SpongeBob and Patrick to go to the kingdom of Poseidon, which is the, in the lost city of Atlantic City, and uh, confront Poseidon and get Gary back, and also put SpongeBob on trial for the strength of his character, and also okay. and also it's a summer camp movie because oh. a lot of the trial takes place is. is told in flashback to when all of these characters first met at summer camp. Okay. Um, The movie is insane and hilarious and I kind of love it. And I think what really works about SpongeBob is because is, is that SpongeBob himself is such a, a, 
a scrupulously honest character. He is enthusiastic about hamburgers and his pet snail. He's a good friend. He is mm-hmm. a really, really upbeat. I feel the same way about Ernest. Yeah. The way the Ernest character is kind of appealing is because Ernest is actually a really decent fellow. Yeah, and if he's annoying mm-hmm. to other characters, it's not because he's genuinely annoying, which mm-hmm. I think is a trap. Mm-hmm. A lot of com- uh, comic personas fall into. It's like if you're actually annoying, you lose some of your comic potential. Mm-hmm. If but you're annoying yeah. because you're trying so hard and you mean well, mm-hmm. we still like you. Yeah, like you know. er- Ernest will break into somebody's house and knock every th- uh, knock all the stuff over, but it's only because he's trying to improve the house. Or I'm going to paint your house for you. Oh shoot! I just set everything on fire. Yeah, you know that that's that's annoying, but yeah. he's a he's a good 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 guy at it's heart. A, he has a pure it, heart. It's the difference between. Uh, uh, Irony hmm. and vandalism, <laughs> right? Basically, yeah. And I feel I feel the same way about SpongeBob because SpongeBob himself is such a cheery character and is always such an upbeat kind of mood. You can put him in all these weird uh, situations, and you're always sort of like, "Yeah, I'm with you, SpongeBob. You're my friend, SpongeBob. SpongeBob <laughs> would be my friend." I feel like I feel like SpongeBob is one of those shows that came along like I think it was like the early 2000s, I think. Mm-hmm. And I was I was in college, and I wasn't. You know, smoking a lot of weed at the time, so I didn't really, <laughs> I didn't really know about SpongeBob until like much later. And I have a lot of respect for SpongeBob. It's a cute show. I've I've never seen a lot of it, but I've seen a few here and there. I saw mm. the first movie, and I thought it was genuinely funny. And I got a lot of respect for SpongeBob. And I know it's just one of those things. I know if I had been a kid when SpongeBob came out, <laughs> it would be one of my favorite things. It would totally be. You know, it, it has that like Monty Python mm-hmm. energy where it's just like anything mm-hmm. goes. There's no limit on what the humor is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have absolute admiration that something that weird was not only put on kids television, but thrived. Yeah, and and it's continued to thrive. Yeah. There's a new series now on Paramount Plus. So Good, it's, that's great. Yeah. I love that. Let it be if if, an, if you're going to have an institution, let it be something weird. Mm. Let it be something fun, you know. Um, so that's cool. I, that sounds great. I, yeah, I, I want to see this one. Yeah. I really dug the SpongeBob. I, these SpongeBob movies are a, a sweet little balm, and I'm happy to get them every couple of years. Nice. All right. Uh, speaking of a sweet little balm, mm-hmm. uh, I I. Uh, uh, I no, I don't actually have a good segue. You want to talk? What do you want to talk about next? You want to talk about like, what my Salinger year or Lazarus? I'll, I'll talk about my Salinger year. Okay, um, cool. I was trying to find a something mm-hmm. segue. And I got it. <laughs> uh, my Salinger year, uh, which is based on uh, an actual uh, memoir written by Joanna Rakoff. Uh, it stars uh, Margaret Qualley, who uh, I first saw in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she plays Joanna Rakoff, and it's uh, reminiscing the time in sort of like the late 1990s, uh, where she gets a job for a really prestigious uh, publishing house. It's run by a very uh, kind of stern, almost cruel boss, played by Sigourney Weaver. And she is assigned right away, and very secretly, the J.D. Salinger account. Uh, They represent J.D. Salinger, and he is, you know, living in hiding, but he does communicate with his publisher, and it turns out J.D. Salinger receives a lot of fan mail... And it is her job to read the fan mail and then shred it. Like she uh, shred and and send back like a form letter that like a a hand typed form letter that J.D. Salinger has said is okay to give to everyone. Yeah. And uh, of course, over the. Thank you for your interest. Goodbye. Exactly. Thank you for writing. J.D. Salinger doesn't answer fan mail. Bye. Yeah. 
uh, and she, of course, she's very young. She's very idealistic. She wants, she's excited about literature. She's very, uh, very big on her favorite authors and all of the books she wants to read. And she has dreams of being a writer, but she's doing this right now. Uh, she falls in with, uh, kind of an older hipster, New, New York, Brooklyn artist type, uh, who's a little bit pewy and sour about the state of the world and man, but that's really interesting when you're young. And, uh, <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes you realize, oh wait, no, you're just a jerk. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, she fall, falls in and starts having this uh, kind of tempestuous relationship with this guy, and also uh, begins reading all you know, through reading all these fan mail, uh, begins to start feeling connections with some of the people who are uh, really connected to J.D. Salinger. Yeah. And the big irony is she's never read J.D. Salinger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So she she gets to know J.D. Salinger through brief conversations on the phone and all of these people who just really love Holden Caulfield. They never uh, talk about any of the other stuff. It's only Holden Caulfield. No, other things as well. Okay. Um, He's mostly known for writing The Catcher in the the Rye, in case you didn't know, but like he's written other stuff too. And, and, uh, you know, she gets into fights with her boss. She's trying to be a little bit more forward thinking and a little bit more warm and humane and, uh, the Sigourney Weaver character's like, no, we do things by the book. We're very business oriented here and, uh, as such, she begins like alienating some of their authors. A uh, Judy Bloom appears in the movie as a character, and oh, uh, that's fun. And yeah, she shows up in the office and, uh, and doesn't have a very good uh, relationship with the Sigourney Weaver character. Uh, this is a wonderfully nostalgic film, not just for the '90s, uh, when I feel like there was a lot more talk of like literature if you go back and watch something like Slacker, which I think is one of the defining films of the '90s, even though it was shot in the late '80s. Uh, the the milieu was we're all going to discuss popular culture, but also we're going to uh, drop in a lot of uh, references to classic literature because this is a generation that was very highly educated and then it's put into a world where that education is kind of valueless. So we're just going to start using these uh, pieces of literature, of old literature, of, uh, you know, uh, you know, Algonquin roundtable types of criticism uh, as part of our own vernacular. And uh, this this film really understands that particular period and using uh, literature as uh, uh, talking points mm. uh, with just young people and their friends. Uh, it's also uh, kind of nostalgic for uh, just literature in general and this idea that reading is exciting. I like that. I like this talk of all of these books and it made me want to turn the movie off and just, you know, start <laughs> reading all of the books that I have yet to get to, uh, you know, reread some of the older books that I've read. It is a film that is excited about literature and makes you excited about literature. And I really, really love that. Margaret Qualley, uh, keep an eye on her. Yeah. Uh, she's going to be a huge star someday. Uh, so yeah, she, she's really, really good in this movie. She has a lot of life and vivacity. Uh, and she holds her own with Sigourney Weaver, which, you know, that's got to be intimidating because Sigourney Weaver is it's great. She's a great actress. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I really, really love this movie. I love uh, loved all the little bits, all the little details, all the character moments and it's love for books. That sounds like, you know, it's, it's cool because that one kind of flew under my radar. It's nice to know that it's really good. Yeah. 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 OK, cool. Well, uh, we only have one more film that only you saw. OK. And then we have a film that only I saw. All right. But we'll save it for last. Tell me about Lazarus. The guy, not the film. <laughs> well, Lazarus is also the guy in the film. 
Oh, it's actually um, like literally. It's not like a metaphor. It's actually literally about Lazarus. His name. Well, it's not about the biblical Lazarus, but oh. the character is named Lazarus. Lazarus Jones. This takes place in Paradise City. Oh, first, well, take before, me down to there. Be, before I tell you about Lazarus, I need to say how I came upon this. This is a Tubi exclusive. Yeah. Tubi, I'm going to say that again. This is a Tubi exclusive. <laughs> you can only see it on Tubi with ads. Uh, this was put out by Samuel Goldwyn Pictures and for some reason just like was passing hands and passing hands and ended up on Tubi where uh, just sort of in a half drunken haze, my wife and I decided to watch. Uh, Lazarus takes place in Paradise City uh, in this sort of fantasy universe. Uh a young man is, and it's overrun by crime, and there's all kinds of horrible uh, drug dealing going on with, uh, what do they call it? Synth is the name of the drug of the future. Oh, I think I've is, seen that movie. Where which that is, which is similar to Nuke from RoboCop 2. I know I've seen something uh, where there's a drug called Synth. I synth, know it. yeah. I and, know and, it. And the way they consume Synth is a little confusing because they line up these little cigarette-looking sticks in an ashtray. And then hold a flame underneath the ashtray and somehow, like, release the vapors. Uh, a young man is killed by criminals and then uh, wakes up in the, in the ambulance after having been killed. Uh, turns out he is resurrected, a la Lazarus. His ah. name is Lazarus. How poetic. I see where you're going. Here. Um, see some, some, and then some uh, after he arrives back at his apartment, this weird demonic figure in a, in a pork pie hat appears to him and says, Hey, uh, you have been selected to be a superhero. Now you're a superhero. You cannot die. You're like super strong. And also you're kind of like a Highlander because whenever you kill somebody, you gain all their memories and their strength and their powers. Oh, uh, so he, he's got Highlander strength powers, okay. and now he has to go out into the world and uh, interact with way too big a cast of characters <laughs> trying to figure out whatever the hell the plot is of this movie, because I I could not tell you. Maybe it was because it was on Tubi and I kept getting interrupted by ads that I kept losing threads, but it was really difficult to follow who some of these people were. One, he has a best friend who works as a mechanic. Late into the movie, it's revealed that he also has a little sister who has some bearing on the plot, I think. Uh, at one point, he enlists a bunch of like his old army buddies to go raid a drug uh, man manufacturing location. And mm. uh, they do raid it, but that's not the climax of the movie. They like raid it and kill a bunch of guys, and then they just sort of leave, and the bad guy's still okay. Uh, and we eventually learn that the, that demonic figure has a counterpart in this angelic figure Ooh. who's been looking over an, another superpowered being in a really awesome looking hoodie who calls himself the Testament. And they're trying to orchestrate something where the Testament and Lazarus can get together for some reason. Ah. They're guided there by a, a psychic who reads tarot cards played by the pop star Maya. Okay. Uh, there is a cop in it in maybe two scenes. He's second build. He's played by Costas Mandalore from the Saw sequels. Ah, good old Costas. Yeah. Second build, huh? It's Costas Mandalore is second build in this movie. Wow. And he has like three scenes and he's the cop. Like wow. he doesn't even play a major part in the movie. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, it was interesting to see Maya in this movie. Uh, yeah. Well, is it Ma Maya who, uh, who sang the hook for Ghetto Superstar back in the day? No, oh, that is what you are. <laughs> uh, this film is a big sloppy piece of shit uh, <laughs> okay not to put too fine a point on it uh 
it's clearly, and I, I kind of wish more people would do this, but this is clearly a need to start like the, a new interconnected superhero universe, a la the Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marvel has been getting a lot of traction from how well known its characters uh, were in the past. A lot of the goodwill from for characters like the Hulk and Captain America, because we know those characters, whether or not we've read the comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and as they've gone along, they've introduced a lot more obscure characters like the Guardians of the Galaxy. And we're just about to have uh, Shang-Chi. These are not as well known, but they will be because of this film series. So they've been building and getting people excited based on a pretty solid bedrock. As such, I think a lot of people are hesitant to try to invent their own superhero characters, uh, a la Doug Lemon's Jumper, which we mentioned earlier. That yeah. was a superhero movie that started this new superhero universe and was, I think, intended to lead to this bigger interconnected series of films. Mm. Uh, that seems to be the only reason this film exists, is to introduce a new superhero universe rather than tell an interesting story, because the characters are all really boring. The action is badly shot. The only good action scenes are the ones with the Testament, who actually can fight. Okay. Actually, has quite a kind of a cool looking outfit. We didn't need Lazarus. Just make it about the Testament. <laughs> Lazarus, the Testament, uh, the, the demonic characters called the Hellborn. There's all kinds of biblical references that are completely meaningless. This is yeah. uh, bottom shelf, last video on the shelf at Blockbuster on a Friday night in 1996 kind of film. So it's kind of the perfect film to debut on Tubi. I was gonna. I was about to make that parallel. <laughs> Tubi, which consists entirely of the bottom shelf. There's yeah. like, I mean, there's some top shelf stuff in there too. They, they, but, they have the occasional, but like the yeah, interesting like, oh, stuff that they have is like, oh, like, were you looking for a show that ran for 13 episodes in the first year of UPN? Tubi has that. <laughs> no one else does. Tubi has it's like, that. Well, it's like you're thumbing through. Okay, you know, Frank and Hooker basket case. Oh, look, No Country for Old Men. Like uh, they'll, they'll be they'll occasionally a, a really, be a good really one, great yeah. film. Like, in there not a good one, but like you know, a famous like popular film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of a film that debuts on Tubi, this is kind of it. Nice. All right. Well. That leads us to the last new movie that we were reviewing this week, and this is the one that I saw and you didn't. So, ha-ha! We spent the last 45 minutes talking about movies that you saw and I didn't. And we're going to spend the next 45 minutes talking about Yes Day on Netflix. Which I did not see. Yeah. Uh, Yes Day is a new family movie on Netflix from Miguel Arteta. Miguel Arteta started his career uh, doing independent films like Star Maps and Chuck and Buck Hmm. and The Good Girl... And has segued into doing mainstream studio comedies a lot. Like he did um, uh, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Hmm. I, I didn't see the film, but I heard it was decent. It's 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 fine. Hmm. Like it's perfectly fine. You can watch it with your kids. You'll have an okay time. Like it's a perfectly okay movie. Um, so uh, his latest is a similar kind of film, uh, which also stars Jennifer Garner. Uh, called Yes Day, and in the film, Jennifer Garner and Edgar Ramirez, who's a really good actor who was, like, on the cusp of superstardom, and then, like, his two big break movies didn't make a lot of money. Like, he was in... He played the Patrick Swayze role in that remake of Point Break nobody liked. Oh, Like, if that had made money, he probably would have had... Yeah, yeah, he probably would have been, like, a big deal if that had done well, but no one cared, and... Mm. um, so, uh, yeah, they play uh, parents they met when they were young, and they were people who said yes to everything. They lived their life to the fullest and mm. tried everything that they could possibly try. And then they started having kids. 
And as soon as they started having kids, the responsibility of being a parent forced them to say no a lot. Like, mm-hmm. no, you can't put that fork in an electrical socket. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, you can't eat nothing but sugar all day. Like, all these things. They had to actually be responsible and stop taking risks. Cut to, like, I don't know, 14 years later. Their oldest daughter is 14. They have a, a son who's, like, around 8 or 9. And, like, a little girl is, like, 6 or 7. And they've become boring parents. They're boring parents. And their kids know that they're boring parents. Mm. And their kids don't like that they're boring parents. The kids want to do all kinds of crazy fun stuff, and the parents have to say, no, you can't, because mm. that's stupid and dangerous. And the kids are like, ah, oh, we hate you. To be, to be fair, that is a big part of being a parent. It is, yeah. actually. And I think it, I, the movie ultimately comes down on the side of it's important to be responsible. Mm. Um, and I appreciate that. Um, but uh, basically what happens is it's parent-teacher day, uh, day and uh, they meet their kids' teachers, and they say, we're a little worried about your kids. Like, yeah, okay, people like don't like when their parents are stern disciplinarians, but your daughter has been writing elaborate haikus about how much she hates you, <laughs> and Aww. your son, uh, for a, a thing in history class, did a video in which he had to... Uh, he was supposed to do a video about Mussolini, and in order to illustrate that, he compared Mussolini to you. <laughs> so... <laughs> which is admittedly pretty funny. Um, so they start realizing that, oh god, we're losing our kids. Like, they're just completely mm. stymied and stifled, and we're not letting them have any fun. And then uh, someone introduces them to the idea of a yes day. And the concept of a yes day, which I'd never heard of before this movie, I don't know if it's a real thing, uh, is... In order to make your kids feel better about having like stern disciplinarianism, mm. you have one day in which you have to say yes to everything your kids ask of you with rules. I was gonna say, do they do the kids know this? The or kids know this. this. Right. No, the kids know this. The idea is the idea is the yes day has to be earned. You have to do your homework, do your chores, all this kind of stuff, and then there'll be one day in which we have to do everything you say. You are not allowed to say no to you with distinct rules. Hmm. Nothing dangerous. Nothing that could actually get anyone hurt. You have a budget. You can't go over that budget. And we're not gonna drive more than twenty miles away. Okay. So like these are all these are decent yeah, yeah. ground like, rules. We, we can't go to Japan. Today. Yeah, yeah, we can't go and and you can't force me to say yes to anything that we would do later. Okay. Like, you know, like hey, can we get a can we get a puppy someday? No, that that's not how that oh, works. Okay. Everything we can do today. All right. So, I'm actually like with you so like, this is a cutish premise for a family movie where all of a sudden the basically it's a kids rule hmm. kind of movie. It's home alone except the parents have to do whatever Kevin wants them to do. Okay. okay, yeah, okay, this is a good fantasy for kids, and parents have to do everything they want to do. And so the whole thing is, what will the kids make them do? And they're gung-ho about this. They're excited initially to actually, like, you know, not be a stick in the mud anymore and relive what it's like to be young and youthful. And so the first thing they do is, for breakfast, they all have to eat, like, this, like, 20-pound thing of ice cream at a local ice cream store. Hmm. Cool. <laughs> Uh, then uh, one of the next things is uh, they need they're going to go to a car wash and they're like oh okay we can do that I guess going to a car wash is fun and then once they get in the car wash the kids say okay now you have to roll down all the windows no and that's one thing where I'm watching this I'm like okay I see why that the kid would think that's fun wax is hot and could scald you that's not something I've ever wanted I like going through the car wash just because it's fun to be in the car wash with Things yeah. like pressing up against the window. Yeah, they wanted... And here's the other thing. And, and this is where this, the, the movie starts losing me because the, the it seems like a fun thing for kids. 
Uh, as an adult, I know that, again, hot wax is part of most car washes, and it will scald you, so that's dangerous, and they have a right to say no to that. Also, you are going to get so much mold in that car, <laughs> even if that <laughs> isn't gonna... an issue, and that's going to go way over their budget. Hmm. So I'm like, okay, I'm starting to lose the, the thread here. You're, you've set, you established rules for this world. And now you're losing them. Well, also, what what kind of weird psychopathic children want that? I know, well, right? I, I I want to go through the the car wash with the windows open. Like, are they deliberately trying to destroy their parents' stuff? Exactly. Like, it ends up feeling kind of mean. And then there's a whole bit where they want to have uh they 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 want to have a giant water balloon fight with okay. like fifty people. Okay, that sounds actually fun. Let's do that. Uh, and they're like, how did you get 50 people to meet us in the park at noon? And they say, oh, we put an ad on Craigslist or whatever yeah. uh, saying this is an open casting call for a reality TV show. So if anyone asks, just say you're a producer. And I'm like, okay, you just committed fraud. I don't know if, I don't know if, it, if it's actually like legally actionable because you're not necessarily you know, charging anyone money or anything like this. But this is actually fucked up and we should be saying no to this because this, uh, this is bad. It's Craigslist. It's just fun subterfuge. Well, in, in any case, case. I, I don't think there is anything legally actionable about that it's still not great and it's again shows the kids being weirdly duplicitous mm. and like i'm starting to worry more and more about these children and well, they, then they say that the stricter and that this is in the parenting books if you're, oh, yeah. if you're too strict a parent that's when you'll have the the kids who act out more who are, yeah. are trying to push boundaries a lot more yeah and so because uh, they have these they have needs they want to yeah. do things they want to live you know yeah well, it's not not that they're trying to break out of the strictures. It's that uh, th- they're living so strictured that uh, uh, they don't know where they're where if they're permitted to do anything. Yeah, there's no reasonable boundary set. Yeah. So anything, so everything that is breaking a boundary feels equal. Yeah. Okay. I see that. Um, Whereas uh, parents who are a little bit more lax and a little bit more permissive about certain yeah. things tend to have more, better adjusted kids. Yeah. Um, anyway, it, this it, is all very general, and yeah. it's from the the some of the books. But it starts escalating, and then all of a sudden, people are like in the hospital, and Jennifer Garner gets thrown in jail for trying to win a a pink gorilla from Magic Mountain, gets in a fight with a lady over it, and then the kids ditch him and start having really unsafe parties and going off to like. It's called a fleek fest, but it's clearly supposed to be like Coachella or something, mm-hmm. and like even though she's only fourteen and she's totally out of her element. Um. And it all ends with like everyone realizing that responsibility is important, but so is also having fun, and we all learn a valuable lesson, yada yada yada. Um, the only interesting thing about this movie, really, because it's it's competent, hmm. uh, the premise falls apart a little bit, and I feel like they could have come up with some better ideas that didn't break their own rules that they established. Uh, but like, it's reasonably harmless. Mm-hmm. People in it are sweet. Um, for me, the reason why I really wanted to watch this movie is because I am fascinated by the career of Jennifer Garner. I am fascinated mm. by the career of Jennifer Garner because Jennifer Garner started off as a superhero. Yeah, like she her, was on that show Alias. Yeah, which which was like a show that was basically about how awesome she is and what a great mm. fighter she is and how great a subterfuge she was. And then she was Elektra in those yeah, two Daredevil movies. And got, she got her own movie. Yeah, she got her own movie and she kicked ass. She, the movie's not her fault. She's good in that movie. Like she she yeah. kicked ass in that movie. Um and for a little bit, she like sort of just was doing a little bit of everything after Alias uh Got canceled, or well, I don't know, no, its own terms. Just, I think, yeah, just ran its course. It ran its course, more or less. Um, and she was in just she was in a little bit of everything for a little while, 
Uh, she was in that remake of Arthur, if memory serves. She was in The Adventures of Life. She did like some like rom-coms, a couple of action movies here and there. And then, basically around the time she did The Odd Life of Timothy Green. <laughs> I she, think it, it happened before this. She had, yeah. had a couple of roles before that where she had played moms. She did. She uh, she was in Juno. Juno was like probably the first big one where she's playing like a woman who's old enough to be a mother, and she's mm. b- playing a motherly role. But around the odd life of Timothy of Timothy Green, which is one of the weirdest fucking movies of the last ten <laughs> that's years, so bizarre, and that's saying something. Uh, odd life of Timothy Green. A couple years later, we had the one two punch of Men, Women, and Children, and Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Then he had that Christian movie, Miracles from Heaven. Mm. Then he had Mother's Day. Then you had that. Ab- Abysmal movie, Nine Lives, where Kevin Spacey oh, becomes a house cat. Yeah, yeah, and Kevin yeah. Spacey's clearly playing Trump, by the way. It's really fucking weird. Uh, and then you have Love, Simon. And then, like, the one big breakout, like, different genre thing she did for, like, the last few years, Peppermint, was about a mom getting revenge for the death of her kid. Yeah. And then he had Wonder Park, where she played the mom. Mm. And now you have Yesterday. I don't know if this is a conscious choice or not. I feel like Jennifer Garner ha- has come up with this secret plan to become America's mom. It's like working. an entire generation of kids. She's mom. She's mm. like the June Lockhart of her generation. It's just all of a sudden, when you think mom in movies, Jennifer Garner. And that might come across as typecasting. And for all I know, that's how she feels about it. I, I don't know. Mm. I think there's a weird power to that. I really do. And I see her, and she's not phoning in these movies. She's giving her all to Yes Day. Like, she's doing, like, backflips and shit. She's <laughs> she's singing on stage. She's, like, dressing up real wild and crazy and just, like, throwing herself into these things. Mm-hmm. She's never half-assing this. She's completely committed to all these roles. I have a lot of respect for her as a performer. She's just becoming this like weird underappreciated icon i think and i don't know if anyone's noticed it yet but she's hollywood's mom (laughs) and i kind of admire that like what a what a fascinating career shift and she's just thrown herself into it and she's really good at it and i just think it's fascinating that we're gonna like go back it's gonna be one of those things like um you know like when uh schitt's creek like, started getting, like, super popular in the last couple of years. Like, it was well-respected in the, like, last two years. It just really flew off and people yeah, loved yeah. it. Um, and then, like, the later, like, really recently, people started to realize, wait a minute, the mom from Shit's Creek was in Beetlejuice and Home Alone? Yeah, and you realize era, yeah. and you realize that, like, okay, we knew that because we grew up with those movies, but a lot of people were younger and those are older movies to them. Mm. So this is going to be this weird time in like 10 years where people suddenly rediscover Alias or Daredevil and realize, wait a minute, mom kicked ass? What the f- what? Anyway, I'm fascinated by the career of Jennifer Garner. I, I, I wish her nothing but success in the future. And if she is indeed this whole generation's mom, we could do a lot worse. She's so cool. So I, a lot of respect for her for doing this. And, uh, the movie itself is just okay though. Um, (laughs) but she's, she's always reliable and good. Mm. All right. So that is the new releases this week for critically acclaimed. Uh, it's time to give a review roundup once again, uh, how we review movies here at critically acclaimed is you review on a scale of C minus to C plus. 
where a C is average. Most movies are average. That's why they're called average. A C- is below average. And it's anything that's below average. Everything from just generally not good to really, really terrible. And then C plus is above average. And it's anything that's above average. Mm. From it's generally okay to the best movie ever made. Yeah. Uh, and uh, let's just go in reverse order. Uh, yes Day, solid C. Just middle of the road C, completely competent. Like I, some minor things annoyed me. <laughs> Jennifer Garner's giving her all, and I love her for it. But like, mm. it's just a family film that's fine. Mm. Yeah, uh, Lazarus, C minus. Oh. Don't. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, if you like bad schlock, there's better bad schlock <laughs> uh, right next to it on Tubi. Put so, that yeah. on the poster. Uh, my Salinger Year. Uh, C plus. I really oh. liked My Salinger Year a lot. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, the SpongeBob movie Sponge on the Run. Uh, definitely a C plus. Hey, These yes, things nice. are, are just madness, and I love it. All right, Lucky. Uh, Lucky also a C plus. That's one of the best films of the year. I actually wow. really highly recommend. I that will one. definitely check. Uh, I will definitely catch up on that. Uh, Pixie. Pixie is C minus. Not not creative or fun enough. All right, Boogie. Mm-hmm. Boogie a C. Okay. A good 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 character work. Good a lot of texture and, and interesting talent. All right, Raya and the Last Dragon. Uh, C minus. Just uh, not very interesting. That's shame. Yeah. Uh, Chaos Walking. Yes, definitely a C minus. That's ju- that's just not painful, but it's pretty bad. All right, and uh, coming to America. Uh, let's see. Yeah, it's it's affable. It's genial. It's super cheap. It's a high C for me. Mm. It would have been a C plus if like they developed the story a little better, but the cast is really, really good. Yeah. Uh, and I think they overcome the sloppiness of the screenplay with just a lot of charm and some bits which are genuinely quite funny. Like James Earl Jones's funeral feels <laughs> that, like... That bit is really funny. That whole yeah. bit is just comic gold. Mm. I'm just going to say it right now. They nailed that. There's a couple of bits that they nailed and mm. that almost makes it like a genuinely un- unabashed recommendation. Um... All right, that is it for the new releases this week on Critically Acclaimed. It is time for the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club. Once again, over at our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network every week, or every time we do one of these, I know we've missed a couple lately. Uh, Won't happen again for a while. Um, I can't promise forever, can I? But I'm working (laughs) on it, okay? Uh, Again, every, uh, every time we do a Critically Acclaimed episode, we have a poll. And on that poll, we ask our Patreon subscribers to pick a film on a particular streaming service. Uh, and Whitney picks two movies that are important, prominent, famous, considered classics, cult classics maybe, uh, that he hasn't seen. Mm. And mm. I pick two that I haven't seen. There may or may not be overlap. And then we leave it to our patrons to vote. This week, the winner... Was Ed Wood's Glenn or Glenda on Tubi? Glenn or Glenda? Tubi. Yeah, and boy, is this a Tubi kind of film. Uh, Glenn or Glenda is considered by many to be one of, if not the worst movies ever made. Directed by one of, if not the worst filmmakers of all time, Mr. Ed Wood Jr., Mm. who was immortalized uh, despite the general consensus that all of his movies stink. He was immortalized in a biopic directed by Tim Burton, starring Johnny Depp and Martin Landau, which won two Academy Awards for Best Makeup and Best Supporting Actor. That was about the relationship between Ed Wood and aging film star Bella Lugosi, uh, and how they made several films together and had an unusual relationship. Um, 
I had been familiar with Glenn or Glenda through the legends. I had been familiar with Glenn or Glenda through the sequences in Ed Wood. Uh, I have seen a lot of Ed Wood movies. Mm-hmm. I'm not unfamiliar with his oeuvre, but for whatever reason, Glenn or Glenda just never actually, like, I never actually sat down with it. And I was very eager to do so. And I'm going to say this right now. I'm not 100% sure this one is bad, but it's very weird. <laughs> Glenn, Glenn or Glenda uh, was... I, I have seen this numerous times. Yeah. An obsessive over the, the Tim Burton movie back in the 90s. They reissued a lot of Tim Burton stuff at the time. So I, uh, Ed Wood stuff, you mean. Ed Wood, excuse me. Ed yeah. Wood stuff at the time. So I ended up uh, watching a lot of his movies back then. Ed Wood had a um, couple of resurgences. I remember when the Golden Turkey Awards came out. He was all of a sudden, he was declared the worst movie filmmaker of all time right. in that book. That's, that's where the, the yeah. reputation really began. And they actually re-released some of his movies in theaters and like, yeah. He, he was a thing. Yeah, Glenn or Glenda was his first film. It was produced by George Weiss, a uh, uh, shady B-movie producer, mm-hmm. who was trying to cash in on uh, the Christine Jorgensen story. Uh, Christine Jorgensen, a uh, famous trans woman, uh, one of the, the first uh, well-publicized story uh, stories of sex reassignment surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this guy, George Weiss wanted to make a kind of an exploitation movie all about it. Just, uh, and Ed Wood, who was, uh, was a transvestite decided to, uh, say, well, as a transvestite, I'd be particularly qualified to make this movie for you. So he made Glenn or Glenda, which was many things at once. Uh, many things. Ed, Ed Wood wanted to tell essentially his own story, and he plays yeah. the Glenn character. He wanted to play; an, he basically wanted to do an earnest biopic, yeah, like a very earnest and sincere and, biopic and, and, about and, uh, someone struggling with their identity. And he's struggling with his identity. And here's where uh, Glenn or Glenda is actually really, really interesting. It's an open, impassioned plea for sympathy and equality, yeah, and acceptance. It's and, very, and, very, very, very different from any other movie in the yeah. air at that time. Yeah, it's it's genuinely it's a, trying to evoke sympathy and trying to get people to think hmm. about what it's like to live in the closet. Uh, yeah. And it's about his very specific... Uh, he called it a fetish, but it was more very more important to his identity. Well, you've got to remember uh, the terminology has evolved dramatically yeah, since the yeah. 50s. And yeah, so that that's important to remember but, when you're uh, talking about it, yeah. But uh, Ed Wood, uh, you know, as a transvestite, he knew a lot of transvestites. He, uh, you know, tooled around with uh, sort of in the 1950s were considered like the fringe that is gay people mm-hmm. uh, and and on trans people as well. So this is actually coming from a very honest place, reaching out and representing the trans experience in a way no other film was even thinking about in the 1950s. There are sequences in this film because um, uh, as they as the story uh, that it's based on uh, is like released in the papers. Uh, we hear people talking about this, like in the workforce, for example, mm-hmm. and people responding to this headline. And one person saying, "Ah, oh, that's so weird," and then another person who we'd never see them, but they just approach it with sympathy and just say, "Well, imagine what it must be like, mm-hmm. you know, to be to feel like you were born in another person's body, yeah, and to finally have an opportunity to live that way." What, who wouldn't do that? And then the other person goes, well, yes, I never thought about it like that. No. It's basically just teaching compassion and empathy. Yeah. that's uh, That part's kind of noble, actually. It's, 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 it's pretty in, cool. It's incredibly noble, but the, the film also uh, tries to have a, this weird sort of puppet master-like narrator uh, who lives in this little land. And he's played by Bela Lugosi. Yeah. Uh, who worked on the film uh, in order to, like, 
essentially just buy drugs. He was an, an yeah. addict at the time. And uh, he's talking about how there's dragons and all these dangers mm-hmm. floating around in the world. And he yells, pull the strings while they th- show this kind of almost random stock footage and, of, yeah. you know, explosions in Buffalo that have nothing to do with the movie there's at like, all. There's like 15 minutes. Yeah. Like I forget the exact number, but it feels like at least 15 minutes of stock footage in this movie. And the movie's and like the, 70 minutes long. And, but, and in addition to that... Uh, in the middle of the movie, for reasons I can't really discern other than George Weiss, A, needed something a little bit more exploitative in here, and B, right. they needed to pad it out to a certain length, there is random footage from other movies cut into the middle. Yeah. Like striptease movies and, like, and porn like films. BDSM yeah. kind of footage. Yeah, it's... Okay, so we, I want to talk about the structure of this movie, because this movie was clearly... Here's how the movie feels. It feels like it was a relatively straightforward biopic. Yeah. Uh, or, or at the very least, thinly veiled fictional narrative um, about uh, a young man played by Ed Wood, or I'm sorry, a young woman. She changes her sex, but uh, uh, she played she played by Ed Wood, and they're in a relationship. They have a girlfriend, hmm. and they can't they don't feel comfortable telling their girlfriend, hmm. and they're nervous about their future together. Uh, this story is being told by a doctor who is being interviewed by a detective who is concerned because he has seen the latest in a string of suicides of people who are dressing in the clothing of what is considered the opposite sex. Mm. Uh, And he's like, these people are killing themselves because they're not allowed to like be who they feel like they are. Mm. And I don't know what to do about that or what to think about that. So he goes to a doctor and he asks about it. The doctor tells him the story of Glenn or Glenda. Mm -hmm. Um, That story is also... That story, the story of someone telling this story, is told by Bela Lugosi in, like, you know, a a basic cable horror host set. Mm -hmm. And that feels like we were just trying to fit Bela Lugosi in here somewhere, which was generally the idea. What's weird is that why don't you make Bella Lugosi the doctor? <laughs> you already have a narrator. You could just give him a few more lines. Like you just make him the doctor. You've already you don't need a narrator to introduce the narrator. What are you doing, Ed? You're making this so much more complicated than it needs to be. There's no fucking explanation for who Bella Lugosi is, what he's trying to impart upon us. He ends up feeling like like some kind of weird version of God who yeah. like let says let there be a narrative and then I'm going to be judgy and well, weird about it. There is something kind of interesting going on. I think that Ed Wood is almost doing maybe unintentionally with the Bela Lugosi character something he repeats a lot. He talks about the big green dragon that sits on your doorstep, yeah. but he repeats the old uh, uh, children's nursery rhyme about uh, little boys being made of snips and snails and puppy dog tails. Yeah, and he says the, the big yeah. green dragon eats little boys. Yeah, and yeah. and um, actually, uh, because I was curious, I found a video essay on YouTube from a trans person mm. about their reaction to Glenn or Glenda. Oh, And awesome. how a lot of the those inclusions of those little children's rhymes is really indicative of how gender identity is something that's kind of given you at an early age. Yeah. Little girls behave like this. Little boys behave like this. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, indoctrination. And there's, there's, yeah, yeah. And, and there's boys and there's girls and nothing in between, and that's how you behave if you're one or the other. And 
uh, a lot of people who are on a gender spectrum or are trans really respond to that element of Glenn or Glenda about how there's this indoctrination going on from an early age. And that yeah. is something Ed Wood might have been picking up on and oh. kind of communicating in his clumsy sort of way. I think I think that definitely comes across. I think there's a there's a genuine sense of of, of really it really just feels like a wrestling match yeah uh between not just glenn or glenda and what this character is feeling about their sexual identity uh but also just how to convey the depth of human feeling of what it is like to be yeah uh uh you know to, what it's like to live this life um but it's told it's, you're right it's just it's it's real poetry Told from someone who has no sense of poetry. <laughs> yeah, it's really fascinating to watch. And there's something reason why I've and again I hadn't seen this one, but I've seen enough Ed Wood movies to know that Ed Wood, for his many flaws <laughs> and complete lack of talent and storytelling acumen, is an auteur. Hmm. And again, what do we mean by auteur? Auteur is not a sign of quality. Auteur is a completely like non-qualitative uh, uh, statement. It's a quantitative statement, really. What it means is, does this storyteller, regardless of the quality or the genre or whatever they do, put a personal stamp on everything that they do? So that when you see their movie, if you didn't know they directed it, you would suspect that they did. A lot of great filmmakers have that stamp. Martin Scorsese might be one example. Hayao Miyazaki might be another example. A lot of, a lot of filmmakers that people don't like or are more controversial or more like split. Michael Bay, definitely an auteur. Ed Wood, definitely an auteur. He has oh, weird sure. predilections that uh, towards like monsters and circular dialogue where people like repeat the same words over and over again in the same mm -hmm. statement. F like future events such as these will affect you in the future. There's a weird yeah. poetry to that. Like I, <laughs> I, I really am fascinated by his. He has such a weird ear for dialogue. It's fascinating to, to look through his eyes and listen through his ears. Um. So I again I think there's 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 that element to this and I think when we it's weird though because as much as it's pretty well publicized that all of that BDSM footage was you know tacked on by the producer in order mm -hmm. to make it more salacious in order to make people feel people who came here specifically to see an exploitation film feel like they got their money's worth but it actually comes at an interesting point in the film where the Glenn or Glenda character is really at like a crisis moment mm. where they really don't know what to do. And I actually really like that. There's a scene in this movie where they go speak to another person about their problems. And you realize that he's actually talking to another person who is trans. Yeah. And you, you it's actually like, cause at first you're just like, do we know this person? Who is this person? And you realize that this is like the one person they can be themselves to and talk to. And it's actually kind of a nice moment. Um, but they're really struggling because they clearly love their girlfriend. Mm. They clearly want to be with them, but they also feel like maybe it's impossible. And so while Glenn or Glenda is like spiraling, they intercut this BDSM footage that equates conventional sexuality, like heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. uh, like what was considered like the quote unquote norm is what I mean, yeah. like at the time. Especially in the 1950s. Yeah. You know, when yeah, exactly. So, like, what 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 this character would consider as here's what I'm supposed to be thinking about, but it equates it to sexual violence. It equates it to uh, a lot of real intimidation. You know, it's it's not just 
sex. It's sex with a lot attached to emotional baggage. A lot of emotional baggage. Real physical violence is is part of it, and it. I think it expresses the character's discomfort. It ends up having the exact opposite effect of whatever the producer wanted it to have, which is to be Mm. sort of titillating. It's actually like no, it's actually really uncomfortable, and it gets you into the character's headspace of like this deep confusion. Um, and I really like that in the end, the movie results in, uh, uh, the girlfriend finding out, mm-hmm. having an adjustment period, you know, this is not what I thought. And then realizing that they're fine with it. And, and indeed, um, in what is like just a, a great moment of cathartic cinema. Yeah. Hands him her sweater. Yeah, which was like very, very particular fetish of his was the Angora fetish, which is something Ed Wood had. And they play for laughs in the Tim Burton movie. Yeah. Um, In that same video essay I referenced before, um, the the trans woman in question said that is kind of a heartbreakingly tender moment Hmm. where Ed or the the Glenn slash Glenda character is accepted. Mm hmm. Like the, the the dialogue is, I don't really understand this, but together we'll work it out. And she hands him her sweater yeah. for him to wear. Yeah, it's 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 done and in it's an incredibly a, arch way because they're not mm, great actors, but mm. the intent is really sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um then there's a weird psychological explanation at the end, which is just as misguided as in Psycho, where it's completely uh-huh. not at all accurate yeah. about how in order to talk of like live with his transvestitism. He has to uh, understand that he, he like took some feminine qualities from his mother and the way to sort of get it out of him is to project all the females in his mind onto his wife so she yeah, can be like his mother ultimate, and his sister this ultimate and his, yeah. female figure in his yeah. mind all and I'm that not sh- stuff is all that stuff doesn't work and i'm yeah i'm not sure what what edward was trying to communicate with that well and again it's a different time and they didn't mm. you know he didn't have the dialogue that we had today yeah, and, you know it's, it's 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 who can say but it, it it there might it might be as simple as naivete it yeah. might be as simple as just genuine misunderstanding uh but yeah the ending is the ending is just weird and confusing and um uh, yeah, I I I don't hate this movie. I know <laughs> I know it's considered really really bad, and there's a genuine ineptitude uh-huh. to it. Like it's not a well made film. Like mm-hmm. no one no one will pretend these are great performances. No one would pretend it's it's elegantly photographed, but it does seem to be sincere, and mm-hmm. I think that's the element that makes cult movies connect. Mm-hmm. Here's a movie that whatever eccentricities it may have in its presentation, whatever uh, lack of conventional quality it may have in its presentation, people genuinely seem to care about. Like this is this wasn't thrown off as some cynical like, exercise to make money. Mm. This is someone actually cared about this. And people, I think, gravitate to that. And they gravitate to it more when it's like, you know well produced and acted in such a way that increases the level of empathy that you can have for the characters but you can still recognize it mm. and so I, I I can't tell you not to see this movie like I, I wouldn't anyway because that's not my job but like I can't tell you like this is a bad movie I think this is actually just an interesting movie 
Apparently David Lynch loved this movie and there's actually like background noise like in this film that he ended up sampling and using an eraser head. <laughs> and when you look I'm at really Eraserhead, right. you like right yeah yeah this actually like a lot of like the inner world stuff well, that uh, a, protagonist yeah. is, is dealing with in Eraserhead like it tracks. There's a nightmarish quality to Glenn or Glenda. Yeah. Uh, Glenn or Glenda is is it good? Is it bad? Um, it's it's hard. hard to, it's hard to say. I'm honestly not sure it's an yeah. even a relevant question. Either. Yeah. Um, yeah. I decided I I looked them up. Uh, the 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 essayist I looked I up. I wanted to uh, ask the, you about the, that. Yeah, her name is Glouder Glens. Okay. Uh, and so look up that essay. Could you do me a favor when we post very... this on Twitter? Could you, like, underneath it, could you post the link? Sure. Yeah, That'd yeah, be yeah. really... I think it would just make it easier for everybody. Yeah. So follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. Mm. Critically Acclaimed was too long for Twitter. It's annoying me. It annoys me to this day. But Critic Acclaim is our Twitter handle. Mm. Uh, follow it when we post this. That'll, that link will I'll, be on I'll, there. Yeah, I'll, I'll post the video yeah. as well. Yeah. I, 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 I want to watch it just too. Just because so that you. was a good... It was a, a, a perspective that I don't have. Well, on, we need that Glenda, perspective. Glenda. Like, look, we're, we're neither mm. of us are trans. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and it's, it's, it's something that we're incredibly... We really want to know more about that experience, and this is one of the reasons why we seek out movies, yeah. so that we can l- look at the world through different perspectives. And looking at the world through different perspectives, and then reading criticism from people who have perspectives that are also fascinating, and sort of just heaping... I guess my point is, films are a great way to experience the perspective of other people. Film criticism is also a great way to experience the perspective of other people who are looking at the same thing you're looking at and maybe seeing something different. Mm. So both things can go together really, really well and become a really enriching experience. So uh, be sure to seek out other critics besides us, please, uh, who have different perspectives, who come from different backgrounds and uh, can enrich your, uh, your cinematic experience and artistic experience all the more, please. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm really glad I finally saw this. Okay. It, it's, it's, again, it's, 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 I know why people say it's not good, but it's genuinely fascinating. And, uh, yeah. It's <laughs> a heck of a film, really. Uh. Still don't know why Bella Lugosi was in it, other than because they could get Bella Lugosi. Uh, oh, well. Anyway. <laughs> if, if, if you watch uh, the movie Ed Wood, yeah. evidently that's really accurate to the way it happened. Um, yeah. The, the screenwriters uh, followed uh, the, the book Nightmare of Ecstasy, which is... Uh, interview book with uh, the people who knew Ed Wood yeah. and just tells all those stories in, in detail. And I think the movie got a lot of those stories pretty accurately. Yeah. Uh, the, the family of Bella Lugosi thinks that movie is uh, a little kind to Ed Wood. Yeah. They consider it, they yeah, consider um, that it, Ed Wood was exploitative of Bella Lugosi. Yeah. It, there's an element of truth to that. It seems. Yeah, Bella so. Lugosi's son kind of hates the movie Ed Wood because of the way it romanticizes the way he took advantage of his father yeah. who was an addict and he wasn't helping him get over his drug habit. It was just giving him money to keep feeding the drug habit and yeah, taking to help advantage him make movies, of him. Yeah, yeah. He just wanted to take, you know, take advantage. Yeah. It's a dark underbelly. Yeah. Um, anyway, that is it for critically acclaimed this week. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, once again, if you want to vote for future episodes of, uh, the critically acclaimed streaming club, uh, you can join, uh, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, we have a variety of tiers. Every tier is exclusive content. Uh, sorry, exclusive podcast. Try not to call it content. It's, selling everything short um but uh, we have exclusive shows about batman star trek the academy awards disney we have commentary tracks and we you can vote for future episodes 
of not only just the Critically Acclaimed podcast, but a lot of other podcasts as well. Podcasts like uh, Cancel Too Soon and the, and Commentary Jacks and the like. Um, so that's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We're on Twitter at critic acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you want to write in about anything that we discussed on this podcast or anything at all you would like us to talk about, the email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail right here at Critically Acclaimed. Uh, please, if you haven't subscribed, please do so. It really helps us out a lot. And if you haven't written us a review, uh, that also really helps the show find new listeners. So even if you just dash off a sentence or two uh, and just be honest, obviously, we don't, we're don't, we not trying to you know tell us if we're doing something wrong. But uh, it, it just helps. The more reviews, the more uh, uh, people can find the show. Yeah. Um, and um, also uh, Salt Cat Soap. Uh, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Salt Cat Soap. It's the soap store run by uh, my wife and partner, M. Lapis da Silva, and myself. Uh, and uh, we sell lots of really cool soaps. There's a whole bunch of designs for March. We're already working on designs for April. Uh, and the reviews have been really, really great. And thank you, everybody, who's already supported the show. Uh, that's, well, the show, but also the soaps. Uh, thank you so much. It really means a lot to us, and we're glad you're enjoying them because it seems like everyone is. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, I guess that's that. Uh, Whitney? Yes. I have nothing else to say. You've said it all. I love you, man. I love you, too. Anyway, everyone's a critic. I wanna go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109.